Welcome to the Courageous Entrepreneur Show. This is the show that shares information and inspiration to help you end self-doubt, silence your inner critic, break free from limiting beliefs and disempowering patterns so you can break through to create the thriving, successful business you dream of and deserve. I'm your host, Winnie Anderson. If you've ever felt like you were odd, if you have some passion that you'd love to build a career or business around, and you wondered if you could really pursue your passion and make it pay, then you're going to really enjoy this episode. Rose Andreessen is a professional tour guide in New Orleans, specializing in ghost, vampire, and mystery-themed walking tours of the historic French Quarter. She does those tours through hauntedhistorytours.com. A lifelong storyteller, her passion for the strange and macabre began at a young age, and she'd been reading about vampires, ghosts, and other creatures of the night for more than 30 years. Rose has an academic background in anthropology and theater arts and finds her work as both a tour guide and podcaster the perfect marriage of her specializations. This gives a unique, immersive perspective to the tales she weaves for spellbound tourists from around the world. It's easy to imagine she's been telling these stories for centuries. Rose moved to New Orleans one year after Hurricane Katrina hit the area and only plans to leave, quote, when her bloated corpse floats out. She lives in a haunted house with her husband, a pair of black and orange Halloween cats, and a decidedly non-goth corgi mix. Listen in as Rose shares how her passion showed itself at an early age and why she was drawn to New Orleans. How seeming disparate work experiences fit together perfectly to give her the key skills to become a top tour guide and storyteller. The stage secret that she believes makes for not just a, an effective tour guide who commands attention, but also is important for anyone who wants to gain and hold attention of an audience. She'll share the only time you should apologize to an audience, when she knew she was ready to be a tour guide, and how she was able to decide to transition from part-time side gig to full-time professional. The hardest part of being a tour guide, which is also one of the hardest things about being an entrepreneur, and what you must ask yourself and know about yourself before you dive into trying to make a passion a financially successful endeavor. Be sure to visit winnieanderson.com slash passion to get the show notes and worksheet for this episode. And as always, listen all the way to the end where I'll share your cocktail exercise and action step for this episode. All right, Rose, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule. Well, I'm really glad to be here and I'm really excited to sit down and talk with you. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you. I am too. I am too. I have to tell you that... Um, touring the cemeteries when I lived in the New Orleans area was actually one of the things that I loved to do by myself. They are actually, I think, works of art. All, all of them are really works of art. So let's just start right in here and tell us how you actually came to do this work that you do. So I, yeah, I, I have a really weird job. I have a really interesting sort of career and I love it. I, I love every bit of it. Um, but I am a professional full-time ghost and vampire tour guide in the French Quarter. And 
I really discovered that this was even an option on my very first trip to New Orleans. Uh, my friend and I sort of rather drunkenly stumbled onto one of the tours. It was meeting on the sidewalk in front of a bar or a voodoo yep. shop or something, French Quarter, and I was like, sign me up. And then the, the tour was so incredible, and the tour guide was so engaging. When we went to tip him at the end, I said, well, what is it that you do because this was an afternoon tour, so we were like touring at like three to five in the afternoon. I said, what is it you, you do that lets you do this? I mean, is this your job? And he said, yeah, this is, this is how I put a roof over my head and cornflakes in my breakfast bowl. And I thought, well, that's, that's what I want to do. So, um, I, it didn't happen, but I moved to New Orleans and I became the tour guides and I started learning more about the city and I started learning more about the culture and the heritage and the scene yeah. and the nightlife. And um, eventually I became confident enough, although it took a number of years, um, I became confident enough to um, start the process, which involves a test and a background check. And they, they make you jump through a number of hoops wow. to wow. a tour guide. And then I, um, I got hired with the company that I work for now and I started doing it. And it was like a duck to water. I realized that this is something that I wanted to do indefinitely. That's fantastic. That's such an incredible story. So let's go back to you had your own experience as a, a person who was taking part in the tour, right? The, the guest, if you will. Mm -hmm. So when you said, oh my God, this is it. I love this. I want to do this. What made you decide, well, I have to do it in New Orleans? Because these kinds of things happen in really most large cities. Even in the little tiny burg that I live in, mm -hmm. they do ghost tours for at least part of the year. So what made you decide it had to be New Orleans? Well, so I was obsessed with New Orleans from the time I was a very small child. I think I grew up in Los Angeles. So I grew up in Los Angeles area. And what does the Los Angeles area have? The Los Angeles area has Disneyland. And what does Disneyland have? It has New Orleans Square. And the moment I found out that New Orleans Square, which was my favorite part of Disneyland, was actually based off of a, of a real place, I was in love with New Orleans. And later, when I became a teenager, and I really started to get into Anne Rice and her Vampire Chronicles, which are largely set in New Orleans, then the city became even more fascinating to me. So the very first opportunity that I had to come to New Orleans, I did. I, I fell madly fully head over heels in love with this city. And I visited um, every single chance that I could get right up until um, late 2004. And then 2005, my plans for coming back between that year were stymied by Hurricane Katrina. And I made a decision that I wanted to live in New Orleans. And if I didn't take the opportunity when I was in my early mid twenties, when you have those kind of opportunities in your life, if I didn't take that opportunity, then I was never going to take that. And I was always going to regret it. And I, I just sort of looked down this unknown indefinite future path in my life. And I, I didn't want to regret not living in New Orleans, at least for six months. Yeah. So I, I moved here, I, I took the plunge and I fell in love. And I found that there were opportunities in New Orleans um, that I didn't have in Los Angeles because New Orleans is a bit of a smaller city, but it's a, it's a city that has a bit of a cachet, right? So you can rise to sort of the top of your profession in New Orleans. You can be a big fish in a small pond here, but you're still, you still have the big fish leverage 
in other cities that you can take elsewhere. And, and that's really what I was able to capitalize on. Okay. So did you, did you just up and move instantly? Did you, did you create a plan? How, how did that work? Did you, and how did you manage the plan to make sure that you got there? My, my plan was to pack two suitcases, to book a one-way flight, to find a roommate on Craigslist, and to okay. pack uh, five boxes in the largest size box that the USPS would deliver, and uh, have that mailed to me as slowly as, as cheaply as possible. Okay. Um, the Craigslist roommate turned out exactly what you would imagine the Craigslist roommate <laughs> turned out as. Um, the uh, boxes took eight weeks to arrive. Um, but yeah, it, it was really, I think, I think I'd been, I'd been living in a, in an apartment in, in Los Angeles that really wasn't a good situation. It was right next to a drug rehabilitation center and there was an awful lot of crime that was happening. Okay. Uh, there were a number of shootings that happened on our front lawn. So on the one hand, like everybody's like, Oh, you're moving to New Orleans. There's so much crime there. I'm like, yeah. did you see what just happened on my front lawn? I yeah. wasn't phased by that, but I, I got to a fight with my roommate and I said, well, none of this matters because I'm moving to New Orleans in October. And then I, I had to do it. So awesome. everything, once, once I made that statement of intent, things just lined up in my life and I, I had to follow through. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's excellent. So, so you got there. Did you have the job lined up, the work lined up first, or did you, you'd found that afterwards? No, this was, this was a seat of my pants sort of a thing. I mean, okay. looking back, I, I could have gone straight into tour guiding and I would have, I would probably have a very different life trajectory. Okay. Um, but no, I think that everything that I ended up doing sort of led me to a place where I would be an excellent tour guide and where I would also be an excellent podcaster myself. So um, the first job I had, I, I worked in a voodoo shop. I worked in a voodoo shop on Bourbon Street. Okay. And talk about, you know, learning how to manage people's expectations. And when you have very intoxicated people and you're still trying to communicate a very important subject to them, I learned a lot of very valuable lessons about that when I first started working there. I worked at Starbucks for a while and that really taught me a lot about working in a, in a, in a very um, tight, close-knit setting in a, in, in a team environment. I worked at a little gothic clothing shop for a while. I worked at a very high-end hat shop for a while. And I worked at a, at a liquor store on Decatur Street for about four years and that really taught me uh, how to find my voice and how to be cutting people off and say, ah, uh, no. Uh, but also it was during that time that I started doing karaoke with my friends and I learned how to take the stage and the craft of stage presence. And so all of that, I came into tour guiding with all of that experience under my belt. Okay. And if I walked straight into tour guiding, I think I still would have been a good guide, but I wouldn't have had the same sort of experience that I think makes me a, a, a great guide. Yeah, and let's let's talk about that a little bit because I, I, that issue of stage presence is an important one. I think no matter what your profession is, there's a level of presence that one has to have in order to lead and command attention. Can you talk a little bit about that? What you think is important is an important element of of stage presence. What what makes it? that that presence idea to you so I think a lot of people when they're afraid 
And when they're nervous, mm-hmm. they fill up that fear with movement. And they're moving around and they're back and forth. And the most powerful thing that you can do, the most ballsy thing that you can do, is embrace stillness and embrace silence because that shows that you're in control. And there are a number of tour guides in New Orleans who I've watched who are professional actors, and they, they just tour guide because that's how they fill the spaces in between their gigs. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I've watched them, and it's so amazing to watch a person completely command an audience, and they're hardly moving at all. They're just standing still, and their gestures are very measured, and they're very controlled, and it's powerful. It really is powerful. And to me, I think that that's the most important thing that I learned about stagecraft was intentional focused movement and embracing stillness and silence as powerful. So many people are afraid to be still. So many people are afraid of a silence and they don't realize how potent that silence can be. Yeah, that's a really powerful statement. I used to be a recruiter. Mm -hmm. And you're right, most people cannot stand silence. And an applicant who could not take even a couple of seconds worth of silence would often end up talking themselves right out of a job. They would just keep, they would just, in an effort to fill in that, that blank space, they just start throwing out all this crap that's completely disjointed and would end up blowing their their opportunity because they would somehow sink themselves. And I, I do love that point of the power of stillness. And I think you're right about that. I never really thought about it until you mentioned it. But yes, there's a, that person is just commanding attention and, and has nothing but their own words and the dynamic power that, that they have in communicating whatever it is that they're trying to communicate. That I had, I've been on a few haunted tours, and I'll, I'll share my experience with you. But I also have taken part in, and I don't know how you would describe this. We'll just call it a tour. At uh, National Park locations. One of my favorites was in Philadelphia. My husband and I went to uh, Edgar Allan Poe's home at the time, and he wrote The Telltale Heart at that location. And it was really, it was riveting, but it was riveting because of the power of the agent, the, the park ranger, I should say. The, the ranger, you know, naturally he's going to tell you the history of the house, but this person standing, as you say, perfectly still in one spot, he just had us truly on, you know, if we had been sitting, it would have been the edge of our seats. He really commanded all of our attention and inspired such passion in us to want to go on more things that were similar to that whether it was at other national park locations or other haunted types of experiences. So yeah, I I would, I think that's a great point that it's the power of your presence overall. And now then when you, when you choose to move, when you choose to make a gesture or you choose to fill the silence that you have deliberately created, 
everything that you do and everything that you say is is that much more important because you come off as somebody who's very confident. Even if you're not very confident, like even if you're incredibly nervous, um, sometimes finding finding that stillness and, and holding on to it, that, that, that can be a life raft in a sea of nervousness. I agree with you. And I think one of the mistakes that people who are not seasoned speakers or seasoned presenters make, again, this relates to the silence, is they can't stand the sound of, of the silence and they'll apologize for themselves in some way. Like, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Or, oh, I forgot about this. I didn't know you forgot it. You could have just told me that whatever it was that you wanted to tell me. So there's no need to apologize. You are truly in command of my attention. Don't hurt yourself by just continuing to talk to fill up the space. And now you're making excuses for things that I didn't even notice. Right. Well, there's, there's, um, I'm trying to remember a quote, but it's basically no, no apologies and no explanations, right? Unless you know actually that you have in fact done wrong, either either by action or deliberate inaction that you have done wrong, yeah. then you shouldn't apologize for anything. Yeah. You shouldn't explain anything. Yeah. And there's a whole thing about women and, and uh, our tendency to apologize unnecessarily. I won't go down that, uh, down that rabbit hole. My first haunted tour was, I, you know, I, I think it, well, I, when I was in New Orleans, I was down there from, I think it, I want to say it was 93 or thereabouts. I did take a tour of the cemetery. And it was, yeah, I guess you could say it was a haunted tour. They they talked about things like that. But what was I thought was... Was cemetery number one or was it Loft Cemetery in the Garden District? You know what? I can't remember now which one it was, but it I, I want to say it was the one where there's one where a voodoo a voodoo priestess uh, okay. is... Number one. Isn't her? Okay. Yeah, so the, the thing that I found so fascinating about it was all of the carvings and how each carving or statue or whatever tells a story about the person who is in and we'll call it interred because in new orleans of course they aren't actually buried they're they're above ground is my understanding so the like the little the unopened flower the bud somebody who died young Right. Or, 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 or a tree stump that's been cut down. That's a life that's been cut down. But if there's ivy wrapped around it, or if there's a, 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 a marble shoot coming out of it, then that's, you know, eternal life. Or the upside down, um, the upside down torches um, and the doves. Yeah. Well, so a lot of the carvings that you're talking about were made in the 19th century. And even in New Orleans, which in many ways is so separate from the rest of the United States culturally and um, ideally and, and, and in their sort of own identity, was still very much part of the um, sort of greater Victorian-esque 19th century um, mindset. And death was so pervasive that th th this sort of iconic symbolic language became a way that people could connect with each other, you know, without, without having to say it in words, there were symbols that they could use to express ideas. Right. You know, 
So let's get back to, I'm sorry. I said it's kind of like algebra. Yeah, 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 it is in a way with all of those little symbols standing for something, having a deeper meaning. Let's get back to how you got this position. So you had all of these other experiences in your time in New Orleans. When did you decide you were ready? Um, I was selling the tours as a hotel concierge. I was planning a wedding and the owner of the company that I work for now heard me selling the tours and uh, he rather rather smarmily said, well, if you work for me, you'll make more money than you're making selling these tours and you'll never have to wear pantyhose in the summer again. And I mean, at the hotel, we had pantyhose. I mean, the summer in New Orleans, I mean, that's hell. But um, I, I thought, yeah, right. But I was also planning a wedding. So I've been thinking about doing this for a long time. My fiance, now my husband said, go do it. Um, I ended up working part-time as a tour guide all the way through planning my wedding. And then realized by the time my wedding was like six weeks away that I was making more money three days a week as a tour guide than I was making five days a week and two weekends a month as a hotel concierge. Wow. And so it was a very, it was a very logical transition to go to being a, a tour guide full time. And I have a lot of seniority in the company that I work for now. So I am senior on a couple of tours, including the vampire tour. I wasn't senior guide on those tours at first, but I was, I was committed to doing the best work that I could and, and, and showing up and being committed and being ready and engaging with people and getting good reviews and all of that just sort of lined up. And I've been senior guide on the tour since 2000, since 2017. So for the last two years, I've been doing that full time, the vampire tour five nights a week you know, Wednesday through Sunday. And, and then it, it just becomes, it just becomes a job, you know, like, like, like any other job. And um, I feel very grateful for that. It's a subject that I've long been passionate about. And, and after I'd been doing the vampire tour for a while, I was able to segue into being, well, how am I going to explain this and take this to other people? I didn't start my own tour guiding company. So that's when I started doing the podcast and I started reaching out from there. And now I, I, I think of the podcast and the tour guide is very much as like, two sides of the same coin because it, it lets me reach a whole lot of people that are never going to be able to come to New Orleans and never going to be able to take the tour. Um, but for people who do take the tour and who like my presentation, it's a way to stay connected afterwards and to, you know, build those relationships over time so that when they do come back to New Orleans, um, they take the tour again, they bring their friends and, yeah. you know, word of mouth. So, um, you know, that, that's worked out very well. And it's storytelling. Right, really, both both things are to a degree. They're they're storytelling. You're you're telling stories on the tour, and then that's part of every podcast. Is to a degree, I think, is sharing information in a narrative kind of format. So yeah, I can definitely see the connection there. So let's talk about qualifying as a tour guide. You've, you've indicated that there was some level of testing and, and that sort of thing. And, and there's a, there's a sense of earning the right to be this tour guide, right? So do you, do you apprentice in some way? Is that how you rise up to be able to, to go out on your own? Just do you pair up with somebody and then you're doing it all by yourself? Tell us how that works. 
So the, the process is that you go to City Hall um, and the tour guides in New Orleans are regulated by the Taxi Cab Bureau. So you okay. make an application there and they review your application. You pay an application fee. They tell you where to go. Uh, you used to have to get drug tested and now they've, uh, so, many, so many people um, do a little bit of green on the side that they, they've um, weeded out that element <laughs> of the test. But, um, you know, I had to get a federal background check and I had to go to the airport and get fingerprinted and, um, you know, do the drug test and everything. And then once you brought all that paperwork back, they say, okay, you have one month to prepare for the written test. And the written test is actually a combination of a, of a, of a written um, you have to, to write a paragraph or two about New Orleans. Um, you have to do a multiple choice test and you have to read a lot from the newspaper and, and basically show that your, your English is, is you're competent in English and you're able to express yourself in that way. Uh, you have to pass with a 71% in order to get licensed. I think I passed with a 97% on my first try. Yeah, you. Um, and then because I already knew the company that I was going to be working for, I didn't have to go look around and say, hey, I've got my license, I'm brand new, uh, or do you want to take a chance on me? I already knew the company that I was going to be working for, okay. History Tours. Um, and, and they've been around for the longest. They've been around since like 1994. Um, so I started working with them, and they sent me out on tours with um, several other guides to, to them. But I'd already read all of the information and I already knew all of the stories and so I didn't do much training. There are other tour guides I think who just start out who need a little bit more instruction. Mm -hmm. But by the time I was done with my second tour, I was like, I've got this, I've got this. No, really, like, let me let me do this, let me do this, I've got it, I've got it. And and I did. You know, I was nervous my first time out completely on my own, but um, I, I, I really did take to it very, very, um, seamlessly. That's so great. Usually I've, I've trained a number of tour guides though. And I, I'm always very, um, sort of gratified now when I'm walking around the French quarter and I see somebody just, you know, with their, with their crowd, you know, very tightly gathered up against them and they're not blocking the sidewalk and they're adhering to all of the rules and they're just killing it with a story. And I'm like, that's one of my kids. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it really is, um, you know, I've been able to pay that forward and, and help a lot of other people sort of get started as tour guides too. And, and that's, so, that's very gratifying. That's awesome. So what do you think is the toughest part of the job? The toughest part of the job is the distractions and you will be distracted okay. and staying on point and staying focused and being able to manage your group's distractions as on a Friday night on the French Quarter, all of a sudden you have a parade of 200 people on bicycles that are all lit up with glow lights, you know, going behind you, ringing their bell. There's, um, you know, wedding parades going down the street. There are kids who are playing their brass band music on the street. There are people riding around on the most insanely modified bicycles that you can imagine. They've welded two or three bikes on top of each other. So they're riding, you know, 15 feet in the air, it seems like. Um, and, and those are things that people are going to look at. They're not going to be looking at you. You have to know when it's a distraction that you can compete with and when it's a distraction that you have to stop and sort of settle into that stillness and let people sort of look at everything that's going around and then bring their attention back in. And there's also hecklers, you know. 
dealing with the mean-spirited people who deliberately want to throw you off guard because for whatever reason they that's that's how they entertain themselves yeah. well, that's difficult too and and sometimes those people can really really get under your skin but you can't let that show you know I say that's the hardest part is when there are people who are just they they don't know you they don't know what you're doing they've never taken your tour You've never sat down next to them at a bar and had a conversation, but they're going to come up behind your group and start screaming, she lies, she's stolen your money, you should all ask for refunds. Yeah. You don't know. You don't know. Yeah. So uh, how, uh, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, I'm trying to visualize uh, the French Quarter at the same time. So you have this planned route that you go through variations just in case okay okay and then how do you manage to well uh, people people pay ahead of time right so you have no there's no funds on you personally right so you're secure that way there's no money here to, to rob me sometimes i mean sometimes i'm going straight over to do another tour and i do have a i do have a bank on me okay sometimes so, i've done like two tours in a day and I have a bank on me okay. and I have tips that tip money yeah you know there have been times when I know that I'm walking around the French Quarter 11 o'clock at night with like multiple hundreds of dollars of cash in my pockets yeah well so, so what do you do to maintain your own safety to be conscious of of your safety so um one of the first things I do if I know that I have a lot of money on me I walk with my group to the closest hotel, bathroom, whatever, I excuse myself and I divvy up my money. So okay. some goes in my socks, some goes in my bra, some goes in one pocket, some goes in another pocket, just so I, you know, yeah. I don't have it all in one place. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's a couple of options that I can do. Um, depending on what the night feels like, I can get an Uber or a Lyft and go home, but usually I drive my bike to and from work, so usually I just get on my bike and go. Um, Practicing situational awareness is is key, um, and I'm fortunate that I've been working in the French Quarter for so long. I, I feel like I know the streets very well, yeah. and I feel like I know a lot of the street people pretty well, and they know who I am. I'm, I, I mean, I'm a pretty distinctive-looking person. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like I don't necessarily make an easy mark. I'm tall. I'm five feet, nine inches tall. I'm built like a Valkyrie. Um, I don't look like somebody who's going to be an easy target. Um, and I, I stick to the well-lit routes and I just, you know, walk past where there's businesses, hotels, shops that are still lit up and, you know, make sure that you're not looking at your phone and make sure that you're, you know, um, looking around you. And it, the French Quarter has its faults, but by and large, when you hear stories about people getting mugged in the French Quarter, they were walking down really dark streets by themselves. Doing dumb stuff. Night. Um, they were lost. They didn't know where they were exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, you just have to be careful. Yeah, I think that, again, back to this concept of presence, that really is an important thing to consider because bad stuff happens to good people every city you're in right there's that does not protect you uh, just because you're in one city versus another and there are these things that bad people look for that other people inadvertently telegraph hey I'm a mark hit me I'm 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 
lost. I'm, I'm not confident about where I am. And yes, whether you have your head in your mobile device or you're counting money, I mean, I've seen ridiculous things myself in every big city I've been in, so not just New Orleans. I do think that when you are part of a community, a profession, mm -hmm. and yes, New Orleans has its own special specialness and special flavor, if you will, people know you and look out for you. You're part of that community. So I think that helps too, not being separate, but accepting your role as being a part of that community and looking out for each other, I think is, is that. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, if you see something go down, especially, you know, if I've got a group of like 25 people following behind me, I really don't have a problem, you know, right. going up to somebody and being like, dude, you're being off like yeah you know I remember when I was actually a deeply disturbing deeply frightening incident where I was leading my group back to the start of the tour um, we were almost done and a young woman sort of ran through my crowd screaming help me help me help me and this guy came up behind her grabbed her and threw her up against a brick wall right behind my group um, it was clearly a domestic violence situation, so um, we stepped in, you know. Um, he ended up getting in his car and driving away, and I happened to have a pen and paper on me and some resources on my phone and wrote them down on a piece of paper, and I don't know if she ever acted on them. I know that in that moment, I separated and, and wasn't going to be able to do anything else to hurt in that moment. Um, sometimes that's, sometimes you have to be okay with knowing that that's all that you can do too, which yeah. is also, which is also difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, you do, you, you do try to look out for, for the people around you. If you see something, you know, take action if you're, if you're able. Yeah. So you said that your husband, uh, your new husband was, uh, behind you, supported <laughs> you, right? Supported you in doing this. So how, what about the rest of your family Did, and friends? Did they think you are a nut job here? What, what are they thinking and how, how did you manage to deal with that? So I, I have always been a, an unusual creative weirdo. Always, <laughs> always. So I think my parents were not exactly shocked when I started this job. I think my dad had a moment when I said, well, after this last sort of seniority upgrade, this is how much money I'm making a year. And he was like, oh. Yeah. Oh. Um, but my, my, my parents, um, my mom was proud of me. My dad is proud of me. You know, they, they're, you know, their weird daughter that they worried about, you know, like what on earth is she going to do? Like, how is she going to, um, she going to like life in her like airheaded Aquarian boho strange girl way. Um, and I just, I landed in New Orleans and I ended up doing ghost and vampire tours and everybody in my family is kind of like, yeah, she would, would she? <laughs> So I've, I've been fortunate in that regard that they were, they were supportive. They yeah. were supportive. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's Just because I mean, it's, as long as as long as I get my bills paid and I'm not homeless and like I'm not coming to them for money, they're like, okay, fine. Like that's that's what's most important to them. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. I think that parents and and other members of your extended family and and your friends, you know, we all worry about each other's ability to survive and thrive. And yes, if we can see that, hey, things are going okay. Suddenly, that oddity that you're engaged in takes a whole new uh, le- or gets a whole new level of respect in uh, in their mind. So that yeah. that's great. That's awesome. So, what advice do you have? for someone who has this calling that feels this pull towards something that other people would look at and go, really? You want to do what? Uh, Any advice or recommendations you can make for them? I would, uh, you know, I I was, I was asked this the other night after one of my tours by um, a pair of young women who had just graduated college. And what I told them is that, um, the life that you want to build for yourself is possible, but you have to know, you don't need to know every specific and every detail. You don't need to have a five-year plan, but you need to know yourself enough to know what you will and won't put up with. And you need to know yourself enough to know what you're willing to sacrifice in order to achieve those goals. You know, I've never had a car. I've never had a car because that was an expense that at many times in my life when I was sort of building up to, you know, what I'm able to do now, um, I wasn't able to be financially independent and have the added expense of a car. So I rode my bike and I used the bus and occasionally I used cabs and it still ended up costing a lot less than having a car. Um, I, it was only in the last couple of years that I was able to get a dog. I love dogs, but you know, I had to, I had to have my cats for a while because I knew that I couldn't add a dog into my dynamic. My husband and I never had kids. We're probably not going to, um, and I never really wanted children, but I would say, you know, if, if somebody really, really does want children, then that, that's something that you're definitely going to take, have to take a very, hard look at and yeah. figure out, well, how am I going to navigate this? Because that makes it that much harder. There, there are sacrifices. I feel that it's worth it in the end, but I, I feel that it's so yeah. important to stress to people that like the possibilities exist. They do. They're not free in more ways than one. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's great, great wise advice. It does take sacrifice. You don't have to have all the answers but at least that end intention, you have to know what you're going towards and it might not work out as perfectly as you had envisioned, but getting to that end result is really what matters and making those decisions and living with them, yeah. right? Once own them, once you make those decisions, there's no blaming, shaming or anything else. You made the decision, live with it yeah. as best you can. Awesome. So tell everyone where they can find you and what tour company you are with. What tours do you do? Where can they go for more information? New Orleans is only a short plane ride from just about anywhere. So 
So I work for Haunted History Tours, and they are the oldest continually operating paranormal walking tour company in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, you can find tickets online at hauntedhistorytours.com. Um, if you want to take a tour with Rose, then call the number on the website and ask kind of what my schedule is, because it does change a little bit, and I don't make that public. Um, but all of the tour guides who work for Haunted History are amazing. Um, I do the five-in-one tour, and the vampire tour more than any other. Um, and then I also have a vampire podcast, Rose Sinister Vampires, and you can find information about that on my personal website, which is rosesinister.com, and that's also a portal to all of my social media, my Twitter, my Instagram, my Pinterest, all of those handles. Um, if anybody wanted to stay in touch and connect and talk about vampire stories, why do we tell vampire stories is sort of um, what drives me. Outstanding. And of course, we'll have links to Rose and everywhere she is online so you can connect with her. I've taken Haunted History Tours. They're fabulous. If you are just a history buff, you don't have to be a, a ghost or a vampire aficionado. It, if you are a history buff, they are fascinating ways to learn about the history of wherever you happen to be. So I'm a big, big fan. And uh, Yes, yeah, so we'll include all of that. Rose, it's been such a great pleasure to chat with you. I'm so glad you were able to fit us in your busy schedule. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Rose is a fascinating person, and I so admire how she's been able to create the abundant life she has, sharing her passion with others and doing it in a city she loves, which is one of my favorites, too. If you ever visit New Orleans, known as the Crescent City, be sure to put a haunted tour on your itinerary. You can call and request to schedule a tour that Rose is leading, and that information is included in the show notes at winnieanderson.com passion. If you like this episode, please share it with your connections. Please leave a great review for it on the platform where you consumed it. And be sure to subscribe either on that specific platform like Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, or you can subscribe to the video version on my YouTube channel at winnietv.com. When you subscribe on my website at winnieanderson.com fans, you'll get episodes emailed to you each week along with a corresponding worksheet for that episode. In addition to the episodes, you'll get information, tips, and resources to help you sell your services, even though you hate to sell, get your message out in a more powerful way, and achieve your business goals. All right, so your cocktail exercise, otherwise known as a reflection exercise, no alcohol needs to be involved, don't overindulge, and don't drink and drive. All right, so your reflection exercise is really to think about two things that Rose shared. First is this concept of stage presence. Do you communicate confidence in the information you share? People are drawn to those who speak and act confidently. We want to work with experts, and there's a certain level of stage presence that you do need to have to communicate you are, in fact, confident of your message and the results you help produce for clients. The second thing is this powerful statement she made that you have to know yourself well enough to know what sacrifices you're willing to, to make in order to achieve your dreams. That's one of the most profound things I've heard said on this show, and it's, frankly, I, I thought it was really just interview-stopping. There's an old saying that everyone wants to be an author, but no one wants to write the book. So what are you willing to do without or put up with in order to achieve your dreams? Are you willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary? Okay, your action step. 
I want you to make a list of all the things that you won't do. Everything. I once worked with a client who said no to every suggestion I made. She wouldn't go to networking events. They were a waste of time. She never meets anybody. It's too much time to go. She wouldn't blog. She didn't like writing. She wasn't very good at it. She'd spend all of her time second-guessing her grammar. Nobody was going to read it. She wouldn't put up an online portfolio of samples of her work. She wouldn't reach out to professionals who served her ideal client to develop referral partnerships. She wouldn't speak, and she certainly wasn't going to do video. Well, there's nothing left other than cold calling, and she obviously wasn't going to do that either. So is it any wonder that she didn't have any clients? As my mentor Pam Hendrickson said, you have to participate in your own rescue. So make that list of what you won't do. Identify what you will do. To help you out on the worksheet for this episode, I'm including a checklist of suggestions and suggested marketing tactics. You can pick one that you're not doing that you're willing to add to what you are doing and then track your results. Once you feel confident in that new tactic, keep going and then add another. Keep in mind, if nothing's working, you likely have a different problem and you need to figure that out first. Could be your message, could be your audience, could be the, the tool or platform you're using. If you like this episode, please share it with your connections. Please leave a great review for it on the platform where you consumed it. And be sure to subscribe either on that specific platform like Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, or you can subscribe to the video version on my YouTube channel at winnietv.com. When you subscribe on my website at winnieanderson.com fans, you'll get episodes emailed to you each week along with a corresponding worksheet for that episode. In addition to the episodes, you'll get information, tips, and resources to help you come out of hiding, get your message out in a more powerful way, and achieve your business goals so you can profit from your expertise. Remember, if you're an introverted solo professional or someone with introverted leanings ready to get support to reach your business goals as part of a community of like-minded and like-personality professionals, then head over to winnieanderson.com slash join the group and join my Courageous Success community on Facebook. It's for introverted, mission-driven entrepreneurs, and it's where I share tips and strategies to help you choose faith over fear and take consistent action to achieve your goals. Thanks for listening, and remember, you deserve all the success you dream of.